Amen. All right, good morning. Um, I know we have a lot of people, a lot of families um, at home this week. We got some families self-quarantining, all sorts of stuff. So I'm glad that we can at least leverage technology um, and connect that way, which is awesome. Um, I guess for me, I guess my sabbatical cat is out the bag now. Um, thank you so much to everybody that has sent messages this week and um, been so encouraging. I mean, marking 10 years in ministry is pretty crazy to think about, um, although I don't have the haircut of a young man. I'm still relatively young. And so 10 years in ministry is pretty crazy. Um, and I know for us as a family, we're really looking forward to what this season is gonna look like for us as we rest. And so I think for, for me, preaching a standalone message on rest makes a lot of sense, uh, selfishly, because I can send myself out into sabbatical at a macro level, but also for us. And I think there's a lot of reasons why I've returned to this, I think. I mean, this is the third time I've preached on rest and restfulness in the last two years. I mean, that's, that's a lot. Um, but the reason why is because I get to pastor you. I get to kind of get into your life. I get to kind of lift the hood up and look into the interior of your life. And so many of you are not restful. So many of us are not resting well right now. And there's lots of reasons for that. There's lots of layers to this as to why I think it's extra challenging now um, with some of the um, kind of never-ending change and the angst and anxiety for so many reasons and so many uh, things that we're forced with day in and week, week to week, day to day to wrestle with. And so that's really important. And, and if you remember, I mean, the African church father, St. Augustine famously said that if, um, speaking to God, he said, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And I think that's so true. And I think we have to be honest about how much we are actually practicing good rhythms of rest and, and understand that actually if we're commanded to rest, which God commands us to, yet we don't actually make space to do that well and practice it well, no wonder we're feeling restless. You with me on that? Experts actually say that our cultural moment can be defined by restlessness that millennials are actually called the burnout generation. And I know millennials, I mean, I just squeaked in as a millennial, so I'm an older millennial, but millennials get a bad rap for not wanting to work hard, but that's actually not it. I mean, millennials are called the burnout generation for so many reasons. There's an alarming amount of physical, mental, existential, and emotional exhaustion that has, I mean, it's lead, leading to, to all sorts of health issues, all sorts of mental and emotional health issues, but why? Why is that happening right now? Why is it happening in this cultural moment to this generation? Well, I think there's lots of layers to that. Um, we can rely on experts to tell us that part. I'm not an expert in this, but I do think that we are overworking and undersleeping generally as a culture. Uh, we, we tend to be overstimulated and underrested. We tend to be overstressed and underfulfilled. And I think undergirding all of this too, there's also a a certain sermon of progressiveness that gets preached to us everywhere. There's a, a theology of progress that kind of like sits under the surface of our culture. And it's almost like progress and progressiveness has become the central operating system of our culture's pursuit of everything. So like old outdated things, things that are ancient must not be progressive, they're regressive. And so a theology of progress kind of helps us push forward, encourages us to push forward so that achievement and fulfillment is always deferred to some time else. That we can't rest. Why? Well, because we need to continue to progress. We need to move forward towards fulfillment and satisfaction to what's actually next. And if you and I pay attention to kind of our, our heart world and thought world, often behind the statement, as soon as I get, fill in the blank, or, or it'll be when I arrive at, fill in the blank, that we really do defer satisfaction and fulfillment. But here's what I think. I think that if we live a life deferring fulfillment, we will also defer rest. And I think that's the point that the Bible makes over and over again as it teaches us, not just about Sabbath, but commands us to rest. Now, all sorts of symptoms are tied to restlessness. Workaholism and nonstop activity is definitely one of them. When, when you try to slow down, you just can't. Or when you try to, to slow down and relax, you, you feel either anxious or guilty because you're anxious because you should be doing more, but you're guilty because you think you, you ought to be doing more. When you try to quiet your mind, you end up bored or scared. Anybody? So we just fill it. We just fill that space with something something else. When you try to read or think, like anybody read anymore? 
Anyone? <laughs> but when you try to like think deeply, you just can't. So you start multitasking. I caught myself. So like one, one night a week, guilty pleasure. I love gaming. So I game one night a week. It's like a Sabbath activity. The kids and Raquel know, leave daddy alone for these next two hours. He's Sabbathing. I caught myself a few weeks ago between loading screens of the game that I was playing, picking up my phone. That's like 15 seconds. And out loud, I was like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> It's become, honestly, this compulsive thing now. It's just like, I'm just, I fill every space. I fill every bit of time with something. And it is affecting us, it really is. So that's, that goes out to all you multitaskers, where you, you're like, you're really productive. And so you're watching, you're catching up on Netflix's most recent episode while you fold laundry, while you listen to a podcast or whatever, right? You know that none of those three things are getting done well while you're trying to do all that, right? You're not making progress. You really aren't. But you feel like you are, and that's what matters most. And that's just busy body-ness, right? So we end up working and cleaning and running errands and clicking and shopping and watching, and it never stops. And it's almost as if this deferred satisfaction and the idea of progress has become a bit of a dopamine hit. And so as long as we've convinced ourselves we're making progress or doing work that matters, it's some kind of a fulfillment to us in the moment. But it's always deferred because it is ultimately about something else that's coming. Another symptom is this emotional numbness or just a low emotional intelligence that we actually start to dull our ability and capacity to feel. And they've tied this to the digital age because it's so easy to not empathize or understand another. So we just otherize everybody from the safety of our digital screens. And that's led to all sorts of problems, especially over the last year, we've kind of seen those symptoms develop into full-blown trauma and our ability to actually be proximate to one another, especially those that we differ with. They've also seen it lead to a compartmentalized life. So we end up having a big gap between our private self and our public self, whether it's, it's like our public self online or our public self at work or our public self at church or among friends but it doesn't actually line up with our private life. We're a fragmented self. So we have a work self and a church self and a personal self and then a private self. And then we have the real self that struggles with all sorts of stuff that our public self can't know about. So we manufacture and we kind of manicure an image and it's killing us. And what happens there is that the most important things actually take a back seat to trivial things. It also has led to a bunch of escapism, escapist behaviors. That could be overeating, overdrinking, oversleeping, undersleeping, binge watching, endless scrolling. You end up stuck in a negative feedback loop that you don't like, right? Like anybody, it's like, I don't like this feedback loop. Like I don't like the, the cycle that I'm in, but it's like you can't even break that cycle at all. So you have a feedback loop of these behaviors and rhythms and habits that you know aren't healthy, but you don't quite know how to get healthy. And last, this is specifically for those of us that you know, are really trying to follow Jesus in the midst of all of this, it leads us to a lackluster spiritual life. Our quiet time, if we ever take it, our time of silence and solitude, our, our time to read and study and meditate, our, our time in community with others to listen, not debate or argue, but to listen and pray. Those all take a back seat to, to our to-do list, to things that, that we, we think, well, I'm gonna do this for God. And that, then, then I end up doing that at the expense of actually being with God. And like John just stressed, it ends up to a disengaged and dispassionate prayer life. Ronald Rollheiser, in a book called The Holy Longing, said that we are distracting ourselves into a spiritual oblivion. He goes on to just to, to say that we are more busy than bad, we're more distracted than non-spiritual. Then he goes on and talks about it as pathological busyness, pathological restlessness, being the major stumbling blocks in our spiritual lives today. And I know it's not just me, because I get to pastor you. <laughs> and I sit across from some of you, or I talk with some of you, and the question inevitably arises, after all of the things political or theological you want to debate or ask me about, and I finally get to the question of how are you and Jesus? And some of you get cross-eyed and don't even know how to answer me, or you look at me like it's a strange question for me to ask as someone who is overseeing and shepherding your soul, <laughs> kind of a big deal, that Jesus would be a big part of that, amen? And in the midst of all of this restlessness, we really can miss out on the invitation that Jesus extends to us 
to follow him and find rest in him. And so I've studied and read about this a lot for the last couple of years because even in my own personal life, I've noticed some of these things cropping up. And rather than we as a church kind of run straight into burnout for the kingdom, whatever that means, what would it look like if our church, the church of Jesus Christ in Montreal was defined by being restful in a culture of restlessness? What would it say about the worship of our God? What would it say about the nature and character of the God that we love and follow and claim to obey? Let's look at Hebrews 4, where this is an amazing passage where the author of Hebrews is, is brilliant and like the amount of Hebrew knowledge in Hebrews is, is amazing. Like as a Gentile, we read this and we're like, okay, that sounds great. But, but the amount of like Old Testament oomph passed, packed into the book of Hebrews is crazy. And the whole purpose of Hebrews is trying to show us that the old covenant was only the shadow to the substance of the new covenant. And that Moses was cool, and David was cool, and Joshua were cool. Those were all good, but they were only pointing to the true and better Moses, Joshua, and David in King Jesus. Hebrews 4, verse 1 through 3, watch this. Therefore, so we got to ask what the therefore is there for, right? Anytime you see that. So we'll get there in a sec. But therefore, because of all what I've just said, while the promise of entering his rest is still available, let us fear, here's the warning, lest any of us should seem to have failed to reach it, the rest, reach that rest. For good news, the gospel came to us just as to them, people before us, but the message that they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed and trusted enter that rest. For he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now there's a lot going on here and it's a beautiful passage, but skip forward verse eight through 12. Watch how he wraps up. For if Joshua had given them rest, so if Joshua had actually been able to give them rest in the promised land, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. This is a New Testament, baby. This is a New Testament. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, plural, for us as a people, as a community. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. That's an oxymoron, amen? Let us work hard to get into that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience as those who came before us. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And no creature, no one, is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. What I love about this text is that usually verse 12 and 13 there, we use that as a proof text for like the word of God. And it is, it is about the word of God. But notice that it just came fresh off of all sorts of stuff about resting and how there's this key connection between what God says and our ability to rest by trusting him. And what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's, he's unpacking throughout the book all the failure of the Exodus generation. Do you remember the story, right? God shows up, does all the work to rescue and free Israel from Egypt, where they were forced to work as slaves. They couldn't rest. He shows up, he frees them, he rescues them from Egypt, then gives them new commandments, not to enslave them, but to free them. He comes and gives them new commandments, not as a tyrant or a slave driver, but as one who is offering them freedom and giving them a way to live. But what do they do? Well, they fail. They fail to trust and obey. And what, what happens? Well, they, they're going to exile again, and then they wander. So they, they don't trust God's word. They don't trust the way that God has said, this is how you rest in me. So they go and pursue other ways. They're like, ah, we'll rest like this instead. This is more important. So the, the, the author of Hebrews is unpacking all of that, saying that generation failed and every generation since then, but now we have a new invitation in, to rest. But we need to rest on God's terms. We need to trust God on his terms and by his word. And that's the importance of this. And so the warning, you notice the strong warning here is that by transporting us back to the Exodus generation and into the wilderness, but then before that, transporting us all the way back to the garden. Did you catch that? 
talks about nakedness, being exposed. That's exactly what happened when there was this, this disengagement from God and humanity. That we run from God, we hide ourselves from God rather than being fully open, vulnerable, and with God. So he transports us back to the wilderness, but then before that, right back to the garden. If you remember Genesis 1 through 2, Sabbath is a big deal, right? That rest is actually the point of the Genesis creation myth altogether, and that's crazy. And Genesis 1 and 2 walks us through this God who actually speaks, and when he speaks, he assigns function and order and beauty, and it's all good. Before that was a cool 90s hip-hop statement of it being all good, God had already said it was all good. Hip-hop is in Genesis, amen. But he assigns beauty and order and function. Everything is where it's supposed to be. Everything is in the order it's supposed to be in. Every priority is where it needs to be. Everything is good. Some of us get like tastes of that in our life where we're like, oh man, I'm just like, I'm killing it. Like I'm crushing it, I'm in a good rhythm. Like life is good, you know? Why? Well, it's because of order, right? I mean, I can't work in a dirty room, like a dirty space. Like if I try to actually work, like Kel can tell you, like I'll, she'll come up in my work day and she'll be like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm vacuuming. It's like, well, because I can't focus. Like I just can't focus if the floor is not clean, right? Like there's something about order and physical space and a theology of space that really does affect our heart and our mind. And it's right here in Genesis, it's amazing. But then God does all this, he assigns order, he assigns function, and then what does he do? He rests. It's all good, so he rests. Why does he rest? The all-knowing, all-powerful God rests, why? Well, not because he's tired. The significance of the Genesis story is that God takes up residence within creation. And that's already revolutionary compared to the other creation myths floating around in the ancient world but that he actually enters creation, that he's knowable and nameable and available, and he rests after his work of creation to say, I'm here. I'm in the neighborhood. I, I moved in. I'm your neighbor now. And in day seven, this is what's crazy. I mean, we just do crazy things with Genesis, but day seven, if you notice what's missing all throughout the creation story, all day, day one through six, it ends with saying what? There was morning and evening on the whatever day. Day seven leaves that out. Do you know why? Because the Sabbath rest is an invitation and it still continues today. That, that it didn't end, that the day seven did not end because that's what's on offer. The invitation of come to, coming to rest in who God is and what God has created, the order that God has put into place that we're invited to embed our lives in it and that the Sabbath rest still continues. There's no day and night. It's not, it's not going to be over but it's found on his terms and by his terms. The ancient Near Eastern myths that floated around at the time, um, there was three main differences, okay? This is like geeky level Genesis stuff for us, okay? Three main differences between all the other ancient Near, East, Near Eastern myths and Genesis. The first was that everything God created was good. It's all good. Whereas there's wars and all sorts of weird stuff and other gods doing weird stuff and drinking wine and getting drunk and having parties, like just it's weird stuff. And then there's like weird stuff that gets created out of those weird actions by those weird gods, okay? That's the first thing. The second thing is that women are made in God's image. That is nowhere else in ancient literature. So our progressives, our progressive critiques of Bible as anti-women is not reading the Bible. Like we gotta be really careful with this. From the very first pages, we're seeing this amazing equality and dignity and value and worth elevating women from the pages of the Bible. Amazing. And third, Sabbath. Sabbath. That's the other standout. That's the third standout. Nowhere else in ancient literature is there found this idea of Sabbath rest in creation. Why? Well, because creation itself means that we're going to struggle and fight, but not on this God's terms. Because with him, there's, there's order. Chaos can't even be in his presence. And he's moved into the neighborhood. Like he's available, he's knowable, he, he's nameable. And the Hebrew word for Sabbath, we know, because we've been through this the last couple years a little bit, but it means to stop, right? It means to rest, but it means specifically to cease from something. It means to stop doing what's normal, which is work, amen? Everyone's like, yes, Monday is coming, that's normal. Work is normal, but Sabbath is special. 
So, so we stop working, we stop wanting, we stop pursuing, we, we stop cultivating, we stop wishing, we stop worrying, we stop scrolling, we stop consuming. Why? Because we rest. We stop doing what's normal so that we can rest. What really struck me over the last couple of weeks as I've prayed and worked through some of this is that Sabbath rest steps on almost every single idol of our cultural moment. Like all the idols of productivity and influence and being an influencer and achievement and money and ambition and accomplishment and crushing it. Sabbath steps on all of those. And I would suspect that's why we're so bad at it. <laughs> we're so bad at it. You know what's really wild? Then the, in the Ten Commandments, we'll look at them in a second, but I was thinking about this this week. If I go and break a bunch of the Ten Commandments as a pastor, like, then I just go start murdering people. Like, my job is gone. You with me on that? Adultery, my job is gone. Right? Worshiping other gods, if I just get up here and be like, here, let's have a, a syncretistic sermon on Buddha and Oprah and Jesus. It's like, fire me. Like, my job's gone, yeah? But if I disobey Sabbath rest, I might get a raise. Or at least get applauded for doing the work of the kingdom. How many more leaders do we need neglecting their marriages and their own kids that we, like, we, pastors' kids? Like, there's a thing. Because spiritual leaders are being productive for the kingdom. Or they let weeds grow up in their own garden and disobey God's word. That's not a rebuke, because you, as a loving church, have encouraged the sabbatical for me. But it's just crazy how we've created a culture around disobeying the fourth commandment. And it steps on every idol that our culture props up. And I think that's why it's so hard. And there's two, like, there's two sides to this, I think. Like, some of us live as if work is good, like work is good, but leisure is bad. So like when we're resting, it's like, I'm not productive. I need to do more, right? I can't be lazy, right? Whatever. But the, other, the flip side of that is that others of us, like leisure is good and work is bad. Right, like it's like, I just live for the weekend, baby, Saturday's coming. We say all this stuff. It's just like, okay, yeah, that's cool. You know, it's very strange. Second Thessalonians 3.10 says, if you're not willing to work, you don't eat. It's like, we don't celebrate laziness. You with me on that? Like, it's like, I don't know, God's just gonna like provide. It's like, yeah, but he's provided you with hands, and like feet and eyeballs and the ability to go and produce, right? So if you're not willing to work, now not being able to work, that's different. But if you're not willing to work, you don't eat. So the two flip sides of this is not that, that work is good and, and leisure and rest is bad or that leisure and rest is good but work is bad. Biblically, they're both good. Like, like God works and calls it good, right? Then he rests and he calls it good. Then he makes humanity and tells them to go and work, which is good. And then he calls them to rest, which is good. They're both good. Both work and rest are good. They're, they're both arrows that point to something about God's provision and his work in creation. So we are commanded to work well, but also to rest well. The other meaning of the word for Sabbath, though, in, in the Old Testament is delighting. So that we stop what's normal to delight in what's not normal. So Sabbath is for delighting. It's for life-giving activities. It's the opposite of being productive. It's the opposite of striving. It's the opposite of, of like, it means suspending problem-solving and troubleshooting. Amen? Love that. I love resting from problem solving. It's a gift. It means enjoyment. It means delighting. And the Jewish Sabbath started not in the morning, but at night, right? You guys know that? There was evening, then there was morning. Genesis 1 sets that rhythm up. There was evening, then there was morning. It starts, starts this rhythm. Not morning, then evening, which means for you and I that when you, like, you open your eyes in the morning... And you're not, like, you're not saved yet because you haven't got to the redeeming power of coffee or, or whatever, right? Whatever you need to do to kind of like get back into sanctification in the morning. But your day starts at night by you going to bed. That's what that means. Like our day starts by, by laying down and being totally exposed to the elements. Right? Like you don't do anything to protect yourself while you're sleeping. God still sustains the cosmos. He still protects you. He still cares for you. And he decides whether you open your eyes and wake up the next morning. Like not, not even a weighted blanket can protect you at night, right? But that, that, that means that if our day starts at night, that our day starts by resting. That's crazy. That we actually succumb to our creatureliness. There's something so humbling about that. That we actually succumb to our humanity at the beginning of our day, which is at night. And we have no control. 
So what it means for you and I is that our day starts with night, but also that our week starts with Sabbath. That every day and every week starts with rest. I know we think of Monday as the first day of the week, but Sunday actually is. If you notice that God actually creates man and woman, puts them in the garden on day six, and then what happens on day seven? They rest. Imagine you got a new job and you show up for your first day of your work and your boss is like, all right, cool. So your first day, here's what you can do. Nothing. You're like, this is an amazing job. This is a terrific job. Like they're, like they're already, they're commanded. You're gonna be fruitful. You're gonna do some work, but your first day, day seven, maybe like you're resting. You're resting in me. What's the point of this? Well, the gospel is right from these first pages and it arcs across the whole of scripture. To work for our life instead of working from our life is the opposite of good news. That we're not actually meant to work for acceptance and joy and love and, and attention and influence. We were made to work from our rest. We were made to work from our acceptance, from God saying who we are, from the love that we have in him, from the joy that we're called to experience in him. Then we work out of that, not for that. The gospel is right there. It's right there. But we know humanity didn't do that, right? And you and I don't either. We really fight this. Humanity rebelled from resting in and with God and instead pursued rest apart from God. Why are we so restless as a culture? Well, we removed God from the center of our life and he's become optional or tertiary or the opinions of other people who are into that kind of thing, but it's killing us. And the whole Bible is people wandering in the desert, wandering in exile, looking for home, looking for rest, looking for water, looking for food, looking for nourishment and safety from their enemies and threats. Why? Because they've left the garden rest that they were created for. It's as if the Bible is screaming at us that if you don't practice rest, you'll be forced to wander. If you don't practice rest in God, you'll be forced to wander. We have a whole culture wandering. We have a whole culture restless. And we've been resisting this Sabbath rest since the garden. That's the thing. That our first sin was a tragic exchange of actually looking for rest in everything but God. And the temptation in the garden was be like God, be limitless, be your true self, do all that you can do, be all that you can be, be self-sufficient, you define what is good and right and true for you, for your body, for your money, for your life. That is the lie of the garden. Be like God. The problem is we're not, and it's crushing us. So God weaves this regular rest right into the fabric, not only of creation, but right into us. And to resist this and to ignore this is to actually work against the grain of who we are. We're gonna short circuit eventually. We will. And some of us are too foolish or too proud to think that we will, but this does end bad. We need a reminder that we're not self-made, that we're not self-sufficient. You know what's wild? That the only thing called holy out of the days of creation is Sabbath. That's wild. We've just turned it into like going to church and eating a deli sandwich in the afternoon or something, you know? Like it's like, what? Like it's actually holy. Like there's a holy day for us. And fast forward from creation, from Genesis, you guys know how the story goes. That, that Sabbath is commanded, right? The fourth commandment is how we practice the first three commandments. Have no other gods before me. Don't go after things that are not God and as if they are God, idols. And then don't misuse the Lord's name. There's all sorts of things packed in there, but suffice it to say, the fourth commandment of Sabbath rest is how we practice those first three. And it's the only commandment that actually gets a why. It's the longest commandment in the 10 commandments. It's the only one that gets an explanation. And if you keep going throughout scripture, you have the Jubilee, the year of Jubilee, which is like the seven sevens, right? And then after seven sevens, then even the land gets a rest, slaves get free, debts are let go. Like there's all sorts of stuff that, that is just amazing and beautiful about how this is set up, but it's all built around rest. It's all built around the Sabbath. And a little bit later in Deuteronomy 5, we see a bit of a switch. And this is what we're gonna rest in today. We have a little bit of a switch that in Deuteronomy 5, it starts and says, remember, not creation, but remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out with a mighty hand, therefore keep the Sabbath. Notice what Deuteronomy does. It doesn't root it in creation. It, redupes, it roots it in what? what? Redemption. That Sabbath rest is now rooted in redemption. 
that, that we are set free and we need to live free. You're free. Now go live like it. How do I do it? Sabbath. That's wild. That's a wild connection. That, that, that Sabbath, that slowing, that resting, weekly reminders that you are not God is the way that you are going to experience and remember the redemptive work of your God. That's crazy. But we don't do this, do we? We don't practice this. So we're restless. So we're tired. So we forget the gospel. So we deconstruct our faith into an oblivion. And I think we resist it because Sabbath rest is God's way of dethroning us. You know what's going to happen when I get back from sabbatical? It's going to be really crazy. The church is still going to be here. It's going to be wild. And I'm going to come back from sabbatical, which is, again, just like a macro version of Sabbath rest. I'm going to come back from sabbatical, and you're still going to be here. And I'm going to be like, but wait, I wasn't central and amazing? And, and what? But, but that's the beautiful thing of Sabbath. Like, like true weekly reminders of God dethroning us so then he can be re-enthroned at the center of our life to show us that we're non-essentials. Non that he doesn't actually need us. But redemption says that he wants us. And we can rest in that. That changes everything. Changes everything. I think Sabbath rest weekly decenters us. And in a culture that is built on us being central, of course this is not a good idea. You with me on that? Like, like, that wouldn't make any sense to our culture. Why would you spend an entire day not focusing on yourself? Life is about yourself, right? Imagine we just went to chapters and just got rid of like the self-help section and replaced it with rest. There's only three books written on it. So like it'd be a small shelf, but because we don't talk about it, right? We don't write about it. We don't celebrate this. We don't practice it. We don't actually call each other to repentance and turning away from workaholism. We celebrate it like it's a good work of the kingdom. And it's killing us, church. It's killing us. When we rest, we actually take our hands off of the control of our lives and we acknowledge who is in control. Um, one book by uh, Adam Mabry called Art of Rest, The Art of Rest. He says this way, it'll be up here, watch. Resting requires you to admit that you are not sufficient and to acknowledge that there is one who is. You are not a sufficient explanation of your life, nor are you enough in yourself to find true and lasting Sabbath rest in this life. Embracing a rhythm of rest means seeing God as sufficient and letting go of your own claim to that attribute. I think that's well said. It dethrones us. It decenters us. But only to, to actually empower us because it puts God back in the center where he belongs. But we don't practice this. So we need this to be a weekly reminder. We need to actually pretend like God commanded this because he did. We need to actually understand that this is central to your life as followers of Jesus. That you need a weekly reminder that Jesus is Lord and you are not. Listen, lovingly, if you struggle to take a full day, I'm, I mean like, you're like, well, like a few hours? No, no, like 24 hours, yeah? Like you know what a day is, yeah? Amen? Okay, 24 hours. Like if you struggle to take a full day and actually rest, it might be because you don't want to be showing how non-central you actually are. I think Sabbathing is impossible for a narcissist. I think resting is impossible for a narcissist and our entire culture is built on the idol of narcissism. That's why we don't rest. Resting is so hard for people today in our cultural moment because the false gospel of self-actualization, self-empowerment, accomplishment and achievement relies on being needed. It relies on being somebody. It relies on being important. The crazy thing is that the, the doctrine, the, 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 the like false gospel of self-esteem sounds really good. Like we need to empower individuals, but we have to understand that it's a smokescreen. The only way to actually experience power in this life is to actually understand that God needs to be central to that life. So when Jesus says like, put your life down and follow me, that's not a bummer thing for him to say. That is beautiful. Because the life that we have in him, the life that he promises us is way better than anything that self-esteem can muster up. Anything that self-actualization can do for us. And so he's not calling us to something worse and it's a bummer. He's calling us to something better. I just alliterated bummer to better. Amen. I'm going to miss you guys. 
I think Sabbathing is impossible for a narcissistic culture. And church, we could be this revolutionary community of well-rested people in the midst of a culture that is dying for rest. So what does it look like? Well, first of all, I think that rest actually cultivates humility. When you look at humility, uh, Ed Welch, a Christian counselor and author, defines humility as the posture of living life settled under God. I love that definition. Because we do weird stuff with humility, right? Like we start attaching it to traits right away. But he starts with posture. He says like humility is living all of life settled under God. Settled. Like life is just settled. Not that it's always good. Not that we don't go through stuff, like really through stuff. But, but we're settled under God. That, that humility is actually, I think, cultivated by resting. That, that when, we, when we don't live to strive and force and assert and control and produce, that we can actually live life settled under God. And I think this is why Jesus calls his followers and he makes it central to his kingdom ethic in the Sermon on the Mount, that is the meek that will inherit the garden. It's the meek that will inherit the earth, that he put them there to cultivate. It's a humility of heart that when you and I are saved by grace and called into experience the redemption of this rested God, that we can't walk with a swag anymore. If we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, we can't walk with a swagger. But that also means that we're not caught up with self-concern and perceptions and self-protection and being right and being better and, and being awesome because our identity is no longer worked for, it's worked from. That's the good news of the gospel. So what if we were known for that? What would that say about our God? What would this say to an exhausted culture? What would this say to a hurried and burnt out culture? What would this say to a polarized culture? If we could actually live life in community, rested under God's hand together. So how do we respond today to this? Well, you need to practice this. Like, like I know I've said this, this is now several times in the last couple of years. But the reason why I'm telling you this again is because many of us are still not doing it. So like, when I get back from sabbatical, don't make me preach this. I'll, be, I'll preach this every Sunday when I get back until you do it, okay? I'll do it. Our YouTube is gonna look really monotonous. The same sermon every single week. But we need to actually practice this. Do you know why? Because restlessness is our default. And if you notice Hebrews 4, what it says there, it says strive to enter that rest. That takes like planning, right? Like, like that takes work, that takes practice, that takes actually being intentional about doing that. And today I know it's becoming harder and harder to rest with all the digital distractions and all the pings and notifications and entertainment options everywhere. But you can make progress on Netflix and regress in real life. Tweet that one. It's diminishing our ability to be fully present to focus deeply and think critically so we end up trading real rest for relaxation. They're not the same. And I think this takes practice because it's actually an act of resistance, not only a resistance to the culture at large, but a resistance to something that's in us too. There's something in us that resists the rest that is offered to us in God. Walter Brueggemann, Old Testament scholar says this, he calls Sabbath an act of resistance. And then he says, in our contemporary context, of the rat race of anxiety, the celebration of Sabbath is an act of both resistance and an alternative. It is resistance because it is a visible insistence that our lives, watch this, are not defined by production and consumption. Sabbath is an act of trust in the subversive God, an act of submission to the restful God. Sabbath is a practical divestment so that neighborly engagement rather than production and consumption defines our lives. Beautifully put. We need to practice this. But we need to also understand that Sabbath rest is for us, but it's not about us. You're gonna see this in a couple of weeks in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus talks about Sabbath. He says specifically that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, right? That's actually a gift to us, that, that Sabbath rest is commanded to us because it's a gift for us. And it's warning us as well about using the Sabbath for our own ideas of rest. And we're running out of time, but let me show you one example of this. Isaiah 58, it's a warning for us to use Sabbath for whatever we want, okay? Watch this. Is it up there? Awesome. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, okay, this is starting exciting. 
and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable instead of doing whatever you want. If you honor it, not going your own way or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. Don't know what that means, but it sounds amazing. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The Bible does not play with this. Like this is actually like a very strong warning to us who will not surrender to our creatureliness, who will not surrender to our humanity and be reminded of this. And if we use Sabbath for whatever we want, we just go in like, well, a spa day, or it's like me time, or I'm gonna catch up on this series or whatever. That's not Sabbath. Because a Sabbath day is holy unto the Lord. It's to the Lord and about the Lord, but it's for us. It's to restore us. It's to renew us. And we know that not all relaxing activities are restful, right? I mean, I don't feel great. Like coming away after like a movie that's way too long and being like, yeah, I feel really rested. I'm more perturbed than I have to go do something restful because I hated how it ended, right? Or whatever. <laughs> Relaxation is not the same as resting. And so we have to be very intentional about what that looks like. And we're commanded to actually make it a weekly non-negotiable. So when I get back from sabbatical and I'm pastoring you and I'm shepherding you, I'm gonna ask you what you're doing to Sabbath. I'm gonna actually ask you. So you have like a few months to practice, okay? But for us as a family, we, Friday night sundown to Saturday sundown, we Sabbath. Our phones go away, digital stuff goes away. We, we do analog activities. We walk, we play, we sing, we dance. We eat, we color, we, we play, we enjoy. Like I get on the floor and play with the kids and I'm not thinking about anything else. If you text me on Friday night, that's why you don't hear back from me until like now. Because we're Sabbathing, we're resting, we're celebrating as a family. Now, now do what works for you. You don't have to do any of that. Journal, read, drink that, that cup of tea or that cup of fermented fruit or wheat or whatever it is for you. Play games, sing, dance, or don't sing, don't dance, whatever it is, but finding those activities that we would delight in the Lord, actually enjoy and celebrate who he is and not have anything else on the agenda. That's Sabbath rest. You know what I've noticed over the last year of really trying to practice Sabbath well? We fail, like some, some weeks we fail as a family. We're just like, we're gonna watch a movie instead, <laughs> you know? But, but, uh, what I've noticed, what Raquel and I have noticed, what we've noticed about our families, our kids, they don't, kids don't know what day it is ever, right? They don't know what day it is, they don't care. So like Tuesdays, the kids run, run into my study and they're like, dad, is it family Sabbath night? I'm like, it's Tuesday, bro. What, do you, what? right? All week, they're looking forward to the moment that, that mommy and daddy are gonna walk out of whatever they were doing, put their phones down and be like, guys, guess what? Family Sabbath starts. And they're elated. Like, they're just like, whoa, what are we going to do? I don't know. Let's go dig worms. Let's go eat me. Like, whatever it is. Like, it's like, but, but I've honestly noticed that in our family, we've begun to hear things that we're normally not able to hear. That we begin to feel things we normally don't feel. That, that we begin to know things that we normally don't know and, and see things that we normally don't see. And if you look back in the Psalms, and that amazing verse of being still and knowing that I am God, it's actually attached to the end goal of that being Sabbath rest. It's when we, are, when we still ourselves that we know God, that we know more of God, that we live life under, settled under the hand of God. No wonder Jesus invites us to rest in him, right? Matthew 11, Eugene Peterson translates it in the message. Sometimes Eugene Peterson just nails it. Some of you guys think the message is demonic. Uh, you can repent. Watch what Eugene Peterson says. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burnt out on religion? Come to me. This is the invitation. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. What a beautiful invitation that Jesus actually invites us to turn from all other objects that offer us rest and instead rest in him. And you see that culture can only offer us a temporary distraction and decadence from things that really do hurt, like the, the, the hard things. And that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus doesn't just tell us to distract us away from hard things. He's, Jesus is actually showing up and saying, hey, an easy life is not an option, but an easy yoke is if you come with me. 
So come rest in me. Come rest with me. Did you know that most of Jesus' healings happen on what day? What day does he do most of his healings? Sabbath. Why? That's weird, right? Like not just to tick the Pharisees off, although I think he does that too because he loves doing that. Why does he do that? Why does he intentionally heal on the Sabbath? Two reasons, I think. First is because he's showing us that the Sabbath is still available and that healing, renewal, and restoration are here and now and they're in him. But secondly, it poses the question, church, could it be that Jesus healed so often on the Sabbath to show us that some healing only comes through rest? I think so. I think that's true. So hear me. There is rest for you. There's rest for me. That that not at homeness, that angst of deferring hope or deferring a future version of me, that version will be better. Like, like that's when I'll arrive. There's actually rest now. And it's available. But the experience of this rest can only happen when we practice Sabbath. Like actually. So don't do weird stuff with this. Don't come up with a version of Sabbath that Isaiah 58 would just rebuke you for. Okay? Like, like actually start to practice this. Actually start to prioritize. Be creative. But make sure that it is a time to stop and to delight. So here's how we can practice and start today. We're going to enjoy and celebrate communion to do exactly that. If you notice that in Matthew 26, when Jesus sits with his disciples on the night before his crucifixion, what's the image that he uses to capture kind of like the, the significance of what he's about to do? It's, it's a Passover. And he's saying, so what I'm about to do tomorrow is the thing that's actually going to rescue you from the wandering. Rescue you from the, the inner Pharaoh that's constantly preaching at us to work harder and work more and be enslaved to this and be enslaved to that. And he's saying, what I'm about to accomplish is gonna be a new Passover, a new Exodus, a new escape from wilderness and wandering and coming home and being at rest. And in Matthew 26, he says, now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it in front of them and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take it eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. That's the invitation. For this is the blood, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then he adds this line, which is so important. I tell you that I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. That this is an invitation into a forever rest. And so for us, for communion, I mean, this is, this is so important because for us, this is definitely a symbol for us as believers to remember the lengths that God has gone in Christ to rescue us. This is rooted in redemption. This is a rest that's rooted in what God has done. But secondly, this is an opportunity for us to actually re-examine ourselves and to apply this grace new and fresh. But communion is something that it's only for us to celebrate because it's something that we've already experienced. And today, if you have not experienced this rest, if you have not responded to the redemption that is offered in Christ, today is the day that there is a rest still available, that it's still available now, it's still available today. So let's take the bread, let me pray for it and enter into this rest. Father, we're so thankful that you are a rested God. that you actually wove it, not just into creation as a sign of what you're like, but you actually wove it into us because it's the way that you want us to respond to who you are. And so it's actually in our body. And Lord, we're so thankful that you actually incarnated yourself into our body, into this body as a human being, but yet fully God. And it's through your broken body that we are made whole, that we are made full. So as we take the bread, we just ask that you would reapply this redemption and grace to us, that you would use it to heal us through the work of your Sabbath, that you would give us rest in our body, in our mind, in our heart, because it was first made available in you and through you. We thank you in Christ's name, amen. Let's take the bread.
And it's through Jesus's shedding of his own lifeblood that we get to have life in him. And he mentions covenant because there is no covenant. There's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And God takes that upon himself and sheds his own blood so that we can enter his kingdom with a new covenant, with a new spirit, with a new law, the law of Christ, that we can actually come into that rest. Let me pray for the cup as we take it. Father, we're so thankful for the real life-giving blood of your son. We pray, Spirit, that you would reapply this to us now, that we would understand that it is your blood that runs through our veins, that you would empower us, that you would free us up of whatever it is enslaving inside, Lord, that you would free us up from that, redeem us from, from that so that we can actually come and rest in you, rest with you, rest for you. We thank you that you did that through the shedding of your own blood and that there is a new covenant available and that this rest is still made available today for us because of what you have done for us. We accept it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Let's take the cup. And church, now as we respond, whatever that looks like for you, whether it's to pray, whether it's to be silent, whether it's to be still, whether it's to sing, whether it's to celebrate, let us not walk away from times like this and run right back into disobedience. Let us actually heed the warning of Hebrews 4 and, and, and actually look at the warning and, and say like, no, 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 but we actually want to not be like the, the previous generations, but we want to actually walk in this rest and live according to this. So let me pray for you and for us to this end. Father, we rest in you. The breath in our lungs is from you. We ask that whatever this looks like, whatever day it has to happen on in our week, however it shapes up, however we have to prioritize and practice this, I pray that you would give us direction in that. I pray that this would radically transform us as individuals, but also as our families practice this together in community. And also ultimately for us as a church that we would truly be a people that are humbled because we live settled under your hand by resting in you. We thank you, we love you, we need you. We ask all these things in the only name that matters. In Jesus' name, we all said, amen.